Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. In today's episode of Brand the Interpreter, we will hear from Carlos Diaz de Leon of Agma Group, Inc., providing professional conference interpreting services. Carlos Diaz de Leon was born and raised in Mexico City and lived in the San Diego-Tijuana border region for nearly a decade and a half before moving to Las Vegas, his current home. While in the San Diego-Tijuana region, he co-founded Agma Group, Inc., and its sister company in Baja, California, both small businesses providing conference interpretation and written translation services. In addition to his 18-plus years of conference interpretation and translation experience, Carlos also graduated from Radio Media School of Broadcasting's certificate program, which opened the door to voiceover projects in both English and Spanish, and even served as a co-anchor for a primetime news show in Tijuana hosted by Milenio Radio, a national news network in Mexico. So, without further ado, here's Carlos's story. Carlos, thank you so much for being here today. I really do appreciate you saying yes to the invitation and uh, for sharing your story. Well, likewise, I truly appreciate the invitation. I think that this is going to become a very important platform for all of us as interpreters and translators. I have begun to discover through your platform the universe that is out there beyond what I do. So I think this is going to be very interesting and very useful to many others. Thank you, Carlos. Why don't we go ahead and begin by having you tell your story. Tell us who Carlos Diaz de Leon is. All right. So one important note in that regard is that in my life, I've always tried to separate separate who I am versus what I do. So who I am is a bicultural, bilingual individual that tends to not think of himself as his nationality necessarily, so I am just me. As an interpreter, though, it was a very roundabout way to coming to it. I am a high school graduate. I have no other formal education other than a diploma course that I did in radio broadcasting. But beyond that, just a high school education. I had a lot of odd jobs after becoming an adult, everything from accounting clerk to stocking boxes in a warehouse, to international product buyer for a supermarket. And it was then, I was at the time living in Tijuana, Mexico, working for the supermarket as an international buyer and not making as much money as I wanted to and having spent 
up until then, my whole adult life, going from job to job, two years here, four years there, without finding anything that really lit my passion. And at the time, I saw an ad in the newspaper for an interpreter. It was a local company in Tijuana, uh, led by a lady named Yolanda Walter Mead. And I answered the call and went and met with her, and we did some trials, and she saw I had some raw, undeveloped talent. And so I started learning under her wing. Many years later, um, she ended up closing her doors. And so for a while, and this was in December, by the way, which is one of the slowest months are coming into the slow season for conference interpreting. So my colleagues and I were wondering what to do. All of a sudden, the person we had been working for for years was no longer. And at some point, two colleagues of mine and I uh, realized that we were all there except for her. And that's when we decided to create a company and continue with the work uh, now that she was no longer in that space. What was it that called you, you feel, to respond to the ad? And then once you were involved, what helped you to stay? Well, Originally, when I answered the call, I had always had this little bug inside of me since I was probably 16, 17, as far as interpreting. And it seemed like such an incredible career. And like I said, because I didn't go to college and I started working right out of high school, I just went from job to job and you have to pay bills. And so it kept getting put off. So when I saw that ad, a light went off. It's like, finally, I'm going to have a chance to try this out. And it was nothing but that, really, just the attraction of the career itself and the activity itself. And it wasn't until I started doing it that I came to realize its importance. Um, a lot of interpreters get into doing it because they want to help people, because they already have that inside of them. To be honest, that's not the way I came about it. Originally, it was just an opportunity to try something out that I had always wanted to try. And it wasn't until I started doing it that I realized how important it is to be the voice of people who are trying to communicate and for whom language is a barrier. The company that I joined worked mostly on U.S.-Mexico government relations. So a lot of the work I did then and even that I do now has to do with relationships between government agencies. And for me, being able to be that bridge that allows the U.S. and Mexico to come to agreements on so many important topics uh, is what actually led me to stay up until now in this industry. I think that it is incredibly important for that information to be accurate. Uh, at some point, I heard a story, which I believe to be true. I haven't really checked it too much. But during the Cold War between the United States and Russia, Russia famously is quoted as saying, we will bury you. Khrushchev is quoted as saying that. I have heard that that's not actually what he said. What he said in Russian was, we will live long enough to see you buried, meaning that you know we will be here long after you're gone. And that's all he meant. Because it was translated as, we will bury you, this escalated tensions between the U.S. and Russia. So that is the kind of importance that our work has. And being able to convey the same message in the same register with the same meaning 
is actually what allows people to communicate and to come together instead of being further apart and escalating tensions between nations. Absolutely. It's uh, the difference between war and no war. Exactly. Carlos, talk to us a little bit about the moment you had your epiphany on keeping your team of interpreters together after this person closes her doors. What happens? Well, it was an epiphany that was born out of urgency and necessity. Um, when she closed her doors, again, this was in December. So December, January, we have very little work. In San Diego, Tijuana, in contrast with other parts of the world, most of the interpreters, at least that I know, do direct work with either businesses or clients, not so much with the large agencies. And so we had very, very little work. And out of that urgency and that necessity is that my two colleagues and I realized the only person that's missing is her. The rest of us are still here. Why are we panicking? Why are we not working? Why are we not moving forward? And at that point, uh, we created what is now uh, my company, Ogma Group. Um, Ogma, by the way, is the name of a Celtic god. Uh, I originally looked, because this was my task, I was tasked with creating a name, a website, and starting off our company. So at first I looked for Mexican gods, because I thought that was a good idea, something that had to do with language, but that wasn't the same as everybody else's name out there, something unique. And I researched it, and most of the Mexican gods I came across had very complicated names. And so I figured non-Spanish speakers would have a really hard time pronouncing and spelling these gods. If you create a website and it's named after, you know, an Aztec or Mayan or Almec god, it would be incredibly difficult to get people to spell it right. So I started looking elsewhere, still looking for a god. And I came across Ogma, which again is a Norse or Celtic god, four letters, easy to pronounce, easy to remember. And he is the god of poetry and language. He's actually accredited with creating the first alphabet, which was a rune alphabet in Ireland, Scotland. And so we decided to go forward with that. And we founded our company. We built the website. Uh, well, actually, originally, we bought the domain and we hosted it. And our website was under construction for probably three or more years. But we did so because we felt that it would be better for us to promote ourselves as a collective company rather than a series of individuals with Gmail addresses and Hotmail addresses and the like. So we bought the domain and we hosted it mostly so we could have an email that had our domain for the company. And as it turns out, it worked. Who were your customers or clients? Who were the people you were reaching out to at this point? Well, fortunately, because when Yolanda closed her doors, she went into a different activity. She didn't continue interpreting. We were able to approach many of this, those same customers who were, as we were left without work, they were left without their go-to interpreter. Now, myself and a couple of the other interpreters that worked with her, 
were well known by these customers because we always work in tandem. And so it was easy to approach them and uh, let them know that, yes, you know, Yolanda had closed their doors, but we were there, you know, at their service. And so it was a relatively easy transition. And again, it's just something that happened. It's not something that we decided to build. It's just what circumstances led to. Bring us to present moment, Carlos. Share with us how this grew to what you have today. Thank you. We grew organically out of those same customers. Like I said, our website was under construction for the first three years. Uh, and even today, it is a website that is relatively simple, that was built using the tools that are provided by the company that hosts our account. So we don't have a web designer, but we use stock pictures. So it's fairly simple. And we grew organically mostly through handing out our business cards to people at these same conferences who also needed interpretation and who approached us because they were happy with our work. So we don't spend a lot in customer acquisition and we just grow organically amongst these agencies. Because of that, our work has focused a lot on in the same areas. We work a lot with environmental issues, whether it's water quality, water quantity, whether it's pollution, uh, land, air pollution, uh, solid waste, um, hazardous waste, and all the acronyms that you can think of related to that as far as environmental agencies. And because of that, we also started working with some by national entities, like there's a water entity that controls water rights, water quality, and allocations between the U.S. and Mexico. It's called internationally, International rather Boundary and Water Commission. So we do some work with them. And people that attend there are usually water utilities, but there's also other government entities. And so if another government entity is there and they like our work, they take our card, and next time they have a conference, they call us, and that is how we have grown. So your focus mainly in the field of interpretation is conference interpreting uh, with environmental issues. Am I correct? Yes, that is probably 70% of our work. Um, that has led to other related fields. We do a lot of work now in public health as well and emergency management and response. We do work with some NGOs, most of them environmental, but we work with one particular NGO now that does journalism trainings in different things. The most recent one we did was a conference uh, on environmental investigative journalism. Uh, this was done in Merida, Yucatan, on the other side of Mexico. Share with our listeners what a conference like that entails. Absolutely. Preparing for a conference like that is incredibly important, as it is for any other conference. But for an environmental uh, journalism conference such as this, and especially being in a different part of Mexico, the biggest preparation had to do with species. We already do a lot of work in environmental issues and environmental restoration, environmental impacts. So a lot of the general vocabulary we already are well-versed at. However, when you go to a different region, the specifics of it change a lot. The species affected by it, the types of habitats affected, the plant species affected, and what they're actually doing that is either causing the detriment or what, what is being done to fix it as a result also changes. So you have to be very disciplined and you have to do a lot of research before you go to a conference like this. 
of course, you have to be well-versed in whatever topic you're going to address in general. And we'll get back to that in, in a moment when, when we discuss more you know, recommendations as far as training and what to do and what not to do. But going back to the conference beyond that, like I said, it's just doing a lot of homework. We asked one of the entities in Yucatan to send us a list of their main threatened species and what habitats were threatened. And we looked them up online. We looked at their website. We looked at what they were doing. And you need to do all of this ahead of time so that you can have the full context. And when you walk into the conference, be confident that you're going to be able to accurately convey the message. Because at the end of the day, that's who we are. We are the voice of the people speaking in the opposite language. So you have to understand their context and their work if you're going to be able to do a good job. Yeah, most definitely. And and I think you just answered the question that I was about to ask, which is, you're actually traveling and are on site. Am I correct? Well, this was up until very recently. Right now with the current crisis, all of my on-site work has dried up in the last two, three weeks. And so now I am doing online conferences. In fact, I just uh, did one yesterday that had to do with COVID-19. Because this was a call between California and Mexico agencies and doctors and the like that are preparing a response or furthering their response to COVID-19, I cannot get into many details because it's not information that is publicly available. But the fact that we work with a lot of these public health agencies and we have worked with these public agencies for so long on other infectious diseases and communicable diseases helps us understand the context again. But when it came to COVID-19, still beyond what you just hear on the news, I had to get online and do some research. I visited the CDC website and looked at what they are doing and what they're recommending for hospitals, for healthcare workers, for people, and just looked at all the different PDFs that are available on their website to be better prepared for that call. I know that one of the conversations that we recently had in um, one area of interpreting and how to prepare for going online and possibly doing, whether that be over the phone interpreting or uh, video remote interpreting, a lot of it had to do with the focus on the actual technology uh, setup in our homes. So walk us through, would you be kind enough to share with us what that looked like for you? What did that entail going from an in-person conference interpreter to making the sudden switch, because this was in fact sudden, right, for many of us, being able to have a space that's providing you with the opportunity to offer your interpreting online. What does that look like for you? Absolutely. I have actually led a pretty charmed life, and I truly believe that. It so happens that from time to time, I was already doing some remote simultaneous interpreting using an online platform where users call in They can also sign in online, but most of them call in. They get an invitation. There's a toll-free number. They call and they participate. The presenters can share their PowerPoints, and it can be done both in English and Spanish, and the platform switches it so that the people who are online in English only see the English presentation, the other ones only see the Spanish presentation. And so I had some experience with that. When I first started with that, however, is when I had to do all that setup. First, I, of course, contracted more internet speed. I actually have one GBPS or one gig 
of internet at home. You also need a high quality ethernet cable so that you can have wired connection versus Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is a lot more unstable, so it's really not recommended for this. And you really do need the bandwidth. Beyond the bandwidth though, uh, you also need to have equipment that can handle it. When I first contracted the bandwidth, I did my first test with my laptop and I could not get my download speeds to go beyond 65 Mbps. So if you have a gig contracted, of course you're upset if you can only get 65 Mbps. So I called the tech, they were kind enough to come out and they brought their equipment and they got it up very close to one gig. And that's when they told me, your laptop is too old, too obsolete, the processor's not fast enough, the RAM's not good enough, you need better equipment. And so they recommended what I needed to have as far as the processing speed or power and the RAM to be able to do that. The laptop I have now, and I continue to work with a laptop, that way I only need one computer, whether I'm at home or whether I'm on-site interpreting. But this laptop has a capacity to run up to the one gig that I actually have contracted. Then I bought a headset mic, which is what I'm using right now to speak to you. And I'm actually looking at newer ones now. Um, so sometime in the near future, I'll be changing to a better headset mic. And I'm even considering getting an actual microphone just for quality of sound. Yeah. Are you able to share which tool you use when you're having these uh, conference, simultaneous conference interpreting? Oh, sure. Uh, right now I am working with a company called ZipDX, Z-I-P-D-X. The one limitation that they have is that there is no video available. So even if you sign in online, you can only listen to the speakers. By signing in online, of course, the advantage is that you can see presentations if there are presentations. A lot of the remote simultaneous interpreting or RSI uh, that I've done actually involves only audio. So they're fine with having just people call in on a phone. But it's a very robust platform. I have had no issues as far as the quality of sound coming into me. And I recommend to the people I work with, the actual users, to call in only because you never know what their technology is, where they are at, as far as what we just discussed, the newness of their equipment, uh, the bandwidth they have contracted, their audio and video, whether they're using a headset or whether they're just using the microphone that comes with your laptop. So if they call in on a landline, then you know you're going to have better quality of sound from them. No, that's actually really great information because I know that there are many companies right now that are trying to figure out what to use, what platforms are best. And then on the interpreter side as well, your laptop at the beginning of your story story uh, that you were using that you were told was probably too was too old was probably only two three years old I imagine not perhaps not too many years and and um, you know that's the unfortunate piece too is that we we tend to find out at the moment when we're thrown in there um, as to what we need that our equipment is not up to par with current technology standards and so these are absolutely great resources. Carlos, thank you so much for sharing these with us. And so for many of us out there, if uh, we've got five-year-old laptops, they're probably outdated. You might want to consider upgrading, right? I know. Unfortunately, that's the way it is today. I am old enough to remember when you would have your same computer for 10, 15 years and it was fine. <laughs> but technology is growing in leaps and bounds now. So 
anything you've had for probably two, three years, including your cell phone, becomes not necessarily obsolete, but it will not have many of the features that something more recent will have. Now, having said uh, about SIPDX, there, there are other platforms out there. I just attended a webinar on a platform called Voiceboxer, uh, which allows for video presentations by speakers. It is meant more for the type of conference where you have one speaker at a time giving presentations and the rest of the people are just that there are participants and they can submit their questions via chat and they can be answered by the presenters. And it seems to work very well for that. I'm kind of excited to explore it further, but I haven't actually done a conference with them yet. Um, and there's a third platform that I am certified on, which is called Kudo. Kudo originally was born to provide remote simultaneous interpreting for conferences that are happening on site. However, they have grown their platform to also allow for people to be participating from different places. Kudo does have specific recommendations as far as the type of equipment that you need to have in order to have a studio to provide the service. And I think that's also very useful as a tool, especially if you don't know so that you don't overbuy either. I mean, you don't need a gaming laptop or a gaming PC to do this, but you do need certain computing power. And you said that you're uh, KUDO certified, so there is a certification process. There is. It's free of charge to become certified as an interpreter. So if anyone out there is looking to expand their possibilities, particularly at this time, I absolutely recommend them. It's a great platform as well. Thank you for sharing that, Carlos. Now, Aside from you being a conference interpreter, you are also a voiceover professional. Am I correct? That is true. Uh, and it is also something that came about from interpreting. Several conferences over time, one person or another approached me and told me, you know, you have a really good voice. Why don't you do this kind of work? And it's something that hadn't occurred to me before. But the more I heard it, the more I thought, maybe I should check this out. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, I do have diploma from a company called Radio Media, um, based out of Tijuana, and they focus on broadcasting. So you learn voice modulation and you learn how to do voices and, you know, it's a really good course. And so after doing that is when I started doing some of the voice work. And at some point I even served as a radio newscaster. Share with us what that is like. What does a voice talent do? Well, there are a lot of things. It's a whole universe. Uh, I would love to do more character type work, actually doing voices. But most of the work that I have done is institutional videos, for example, or messages because of my voice. So I have worked, for example, with the San Diego Department of Education on some community announcements. I've also done some PSAs on health issues, uh, both in English and Spanish. And it's a little bit of acting. You get a script and you normally work with a director and you do a first reading and then they give you their notes as far as what to modify to achieve the intention they want with that voice. So anything from, you know, you need to speak faster, you need to sound happier, or, you know, it needs to be more monotone or you need to sound sadder, more formal. So you get all of that direction from them. So it's very much like acting. Yeah, definitely sounds like it. What was the, I would say, most animated assignment that you got for something like this? 
I did something for a supermarket and uh, this was in Baja, Baja, California, Mexico. And their advertisement is still the way it used to be back in the 70s and 80s in the United States, back when you had those commercials that said that this Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. So it was very animated as far as, you know, come to our store and get this. And, you know, so that's probably the most challenging for me because as you have heard during this interview, I tend to have a calmer demeanor naturally. So it was an interesting challenge. We actually were successful in, in having the company like it and actually broadcast it. So I was very happy after the fact, but it was definitely difficult to be that animated for just those 30 seconds of the ad. Carlos, I think that for a lot of our Hispanic listeners, we understand what that animation and the tone is like with a lot of the commercials or, you know, the TV ads that we that we watch or even listen to. But for those of our listeners that are not so familiar, perhaps, would you care to share what that sounds like? Sure. Would you actually like me to sort of act it out? Right. Yes. Okay. So that they can hear what this sounds like. Okay. So we're still doing this in English, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So it's very exa exaggerated. So it goes something like this. This week, come to our supermarket. We have on special X product for $9.99. You know, it's that kind of energy still. What is the, do you know what the reasoning behind that is? Is there an actual reason for this or that just is simply the way ads are run? And I, I only ask that because just recently um, I saw a funny YouTube video, which I'll have in the show notes. I can't think of the name right now that had to do with voiceover talent. And it was some one person that was doing a voiceover that was not for the, um, the Latino community per se, right? Like, uh, and then you had the voiceover talent that was for the Latino community. And it was the difference between the two animations. It was just a comical little script and it was super funny. But going back to my question, do you know why that is? I don't know exactly, but this is my guess. Because in the United States, like I said, back in the 70s or early 80s, you could still hear ads like that, particularly for car dealerships. And even today, you see some, especially for local car dealerships, and they come out and they're super animated and, you know, come see us this Sunday on sale. And I think the idea is to get people excited about it. However, in mainstream media in the United States now, I think they've come to understand that that is not necessarily the best emotion. Um, you want people, yes, to feel a certain attraction, but you want it to be more emotional than just the excitement of the voice. So a lot of ads today, and Apple is the best example. Um, when you see an ad for an Apple cell phone, they talk about the features very little. So they present an image of who is the iPhone user. And they've been very successful with it. So I think it's just the US has sort of shifted towards a more complex um, type of ad that pulls at different emotions than just getting people revved up. Yes, through the use of... Um just the, the, the tone of the voice and the animation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having shared that. I think that that's something that 
I, I've always found interesting in wondering if there was an actual, I don't know, reason behind uh, why our commercials or our ads seem to be a lot more animated. <laughs> so thank you so much for giving us that example. Oh, no problem. And, you know, uh, the Latino people tend to be more animated as it is. Watch people speak at a party in, you know, the United States versus what we do in, as Latinos. First, you know, if you tied our hands, we couldn't speak anymore. Um, we tend to use a lot of hand gestures where, and facial expressions. And we tend to get more animated to the point that if someone was watching it, without understanding the culture, they might think that they were at the verge of arguing. <laughs> yes, I concur. <laughs> Carlos, with your many different projects and uh, the many different people that you work with, how do you overcome limiting beliefs or fears? What do you do in order to be able to say, I, I have a fear of this, but I'm going to do X, Y, and Z in order to get that accomplished. Walk us through your steps. Thank you for that question. I think that's absolutely important. We all have limiting thoughts or self-doubt at one point or another. Um, let me start by saying that I am completely self-trained. I have absolutely no formal education as an interpreter. I was trained on the job and I have continued to learn. So from time to time, that does come in. I know a lot of people who have four-year degrees or even master's degrees in interpretation and translation and language. And that in and of itself can make you doubt yourself from time to time. And I think that there are two sides to this coin. One, I approach every project with very disciplined training and preparation. Um, as we discussed with the project in Merida, you have to do your research. Uh, we earn what we earn, not just for the job we do on the day of the conference itself, but for all of that work that we have to do prior to that, to actually be prepared to be the voice of these people and do so faithfully. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you also have to have the ethics to not take work. I'll give you an example. We were approached by Mexico's electricity utility. It's called CFE. And they were going to have a month-long training for their high-tension power pole workers. And they sent me some of the materials, and I started looking at this, and I immediately realized this is well above my pay grade. Uh, no matter how much I try to prepare for the next two, three months, I am never going to understand this. I'd have to take you know, an engineering class to begin to understand the context of what they're saying. And this goes back to the importance of what we do. My first thought was any inaccuracies in what I do because I don't understand this material could very well lead to someone getting hurt or worse. So at the end of the day, we went back to the customer and we turned down the job. Now, this would have been one month working Monday through Friday, which most conference interpreters don't have that kind of course load. So working 23 days in a month would have been incredible as far as income. But ethically, we just couldn't do it. So I think 
it goes both ways. First, yes, look at the material, see if you can train for it, see if you can prepare for it, see what you can do. But if it's definitely something that is beyond your scope, you have to have the ethics to turn it down and say, this is not for me. Thank you so much for thinking of us, but we're just not going to be able to do it. I find that to be an admirable quality in professionals, particularly in professional interpreting companies that turn down potential income, you know, and on the basis of exactly what you just said, that you would be doing a disservice to those that you would potentially be servicing because of your lack of training or lack of knowledge or or just realizing and accepting that there is work out there that is not necessarily meant for you. Um, and recognizing that and letting that go, I think that is that is just an admirable quality in in a profession, in a business, and just in a human to human connection. So thanks for sharing that. No, absolutely. And I think it goes back to what we were discussing in the beginning about being the voice of people. That is truly what we do. We're supposed to be the Wizard of Oz, hiding behind the curtain. We're not part of the conversation. We're there to serve as the voice for every monolingual speaker at that conference or at that project. So we need to be confident in that we will be able to faithfully convey what they're saying with the same emotion, with the same intent, with the same register. And um, which is funny when it comes to government relations, because American people in general, but including in government agencies, tend to speak the same way they would speak to other colleagues. So they're less formal. So you need to be careful because you know their intention is not to offend when you interpret for them back into Spanish to make sure you use the kind of wording that a Mexican official would use when addressing another official so that nothing is lost in that intent. Like we said, so you don't end up causing a war instead of peace. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I've posed this question before, there's always been that the response of let me prepare so that I can do or overcome that limiting belief. But I, I love the fact that your response was let me prepare so that I can say no, that is above my skill set. And there is actually preparation in that or uh, being able to overcome your fear of saying no, right? You, you do have to, in a way, say, I have to accept the fact that this is something that I cannot do and that there hopefully is someone else out there that can offer the right service. And so being able to approach it from this angle that you just brought up, I think is, is absolutely okay to say no. Yes, this profession demands actually that you are very honest with yourself and to be critical of yourself. Um, That's the only way you become better. And as you grow, maybe at some point you'll be able to do work in more and different areas. But we do have to understand that we all have limitations and not every job is for you. And I think that understanding that is as important as preparing for the ones that you feel confident that you can do. Carlos, recently you attended a conference that had to do with an area that you are familiar with, which was on, I believe it was agriculture. And you shared this experience on one of your social media platforms. And I was just really interested in the story, mainly because of who were your audience, at least what 
I saw via the picture that you posted who the audience was for this event. Could you share with us a little bit about what you interpreted for? Gladly. Uh, the conference that you're referring to happened in Central California. Central California is one of the main agricultural centers in all of the United States, and they provide a large percentage of the fruits and vegetables that are distributed to the rest of the country. Most agricultural workers in Central California are Spanish speakers by birth, and a lot of them are not bilingual. So to be able to be the voice of these people takes on particular importance. It is always important, but when you have people whose safety and well-being depends on this, this conference in particular talked about precisely that, how to safely use pesticides, what pesticides are no longer going to be used because they have been found to be too hazardous, how to actually apply the pesticides, both for your own safety and for the safety of the community around them. The community around them are also a lot of Spanish speakers. So without interpretation, none of these people would be able to understand what to do, what not to do, how to protect themselves. Imagine you live in an area where around your house, all there is is agricultural fields. And they are going to be applying certain pesticides that are legally allowed, and there are safe ways of applying them. So both the applicator needs to know how to do that, but then the person who's living around it also needs to know what to do and what not to do to limit their exposure to those pesticides when they're being applied. And what the signage that they will see around the fields means. Uh, normally, for example, after you apply a pesticide, there's a period of time that no one can enter that field. And this, again, is in order to protect everyone from being exposed. You mentioned before we started recording, Carlos, just a quick story about how someone had taken uh, this pesticide home. Could you share with us what that was again, please? Sure. They didn't take the pesticide itself home, but they ended up taking pesticide residue home because they did not know. And this is why it becomes so important for them to have interpretation and for them to be able to understand. The story is about a gentleman who, unaware of the hazards of doing so, took an empty five-gallon bucket that had contained a liquid pesticide home, rinsed it with a hose, and started using it both to mop the floors in the house and to soak clothes before they were washed. Uh, there is a process, it's called a triple wash, that you can use to actually use those buckets safely and recycle them, but they're never to be taken home. But unless you are able to understand that in your language, you are unnecessarily exposing yourself to a hazard that could impact not just your health, but the health of your whole family in the home. If you have small children and they're crawling on that floor that was just mopped using that bucket, they are exposed to residue of that pesticide that was supposed to stay in the field. Yeah, that was an amazing story. And I really wanted you to be able to share that just because it does bring to light those, I think, stories that we don't necessarily hear when we're assigned uh, the assignment, the interpreting assignment that perhaps we hear once we're there. And a lot of people don't know these backstories and it's just it just highlights once again the importance of the work that we do the importance of the work that you're doing because when we hear just 
the title perhaps of the assignment that we'll be interpreting for, you know, it may seem like, okay, that's going to be a lot of terminology-based, right? Terminology-heavy for for that particular field. But then when you hear about those particular stories, it just brings a different light into the assignment, the seriousness of our assignments and um, what it could potentially entail. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for providing the platform for doing so. Carlos, what do you hope to be able to inspire in others? Again, I think the most important qualities that that I would hope to inspire in others in our profession in particular, but they apply to everyday life as well, are ethics, discipline, and preparation. You can become proficient and professional through self-training, mentorship opportunities, If you are not able to have a formal education, of course, if you can, that would be absolutely ideal to have a degree in something and focus for four years, six years in bettering your craft. But if that is not a possibility for you, you can still become proficient and professional. Again, keeping in mind ethics, discipline and preparation and humility. I think that you cannot learn if you think you already know everything. So if you think you're great, I am a great interpreter, I've been doing this for 10 years, I just know my stuff. The moment you think that, you stop learning. Mm -hmm. I hope that in 10 years, I will cringe at the work I am doing now. And now I cringe at the work I did 10 years ago. And a great sort of analogy for that is one of my favorite actors, Will Smith. Will Smith, as you know, started as a rapper. He has nothing but a high school diploma and He started acting because they wanted to build a show around his rap character. So he started with The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I haven't heard him speak about it, but I am almost certain if you ask Will Smith, he would tell you he cringes when he watches himself as a Fresh Prince and his quality of acting at the time. But through a lot of discipline and training and mentorship and listening to the people that know, he has now become a great actor. And so I think we can do that in our profession, but it demands that humility and that discipline to listen to others who are better interpreters than us. And we will always meet those people. So take advantage of them, listen to them, listen to what they do in the booth. Don't be afraid to ask them questions. Most professionals are more than willing to mentor people or to at least give them tips and guidelines and take full advantage of it. Never stop learning. Uh, One of your previous guests spoke about one of the key qualities to being a good interpreter. And uh, she mentioned that you had to have endless curiosity and be an avid reader. I think that's absolutely essential. Definitely. You just mentioned something that basically is what my next question was going to be. And you stating, if you look back now, 10 years ago, that you would cringe. My question to you now is, what advice or recommendation or would you give young Carlos Diaz de Leon as he was beginning this journey of his? Um, I would reiterate, of course, the whole discipline and preparation, but some things that I have learned along the way is that in order to be critical of yourself in a positive way, uh, one thing that helps is, for example, recording yourself, not to post it on social media, just for you to be able to listen to yourself and critically take notes of your shortcomings so that you can improve. You can start with your areas of interest or the areas that you are already working on. Find 
there's an endless number of presentations online, whether on YouTube or on other platforms, interpret them in your home and record yourself and then listen to your interpretation and take notes. And uh, one great exercise that I learned somewhere along the way was using contextual clues to figure out an approximate definition of a word. As you know, when you're doing simultaneous, if they bring up a word that you don't know, you want to look it up, of course, so that you can use it later on in the presentation if you can, or have your booth partner look it up so that you can incorporate it at some point, but you still need to say something at the time. One example that comes to mind is during a conference that we did for sustainable fisheries. And as they were talking about it, they mentioned uh, the fishermen went out in a trawler and they were on the trawler for three months. I had never heard of a trawler. In preparing for this, I did not come across it. But I figured in context, if these were fishermen and they were on it for three months, it was some sort of fishing vessel. I had no idea what exactly it was, but I figured it had to be. So the first time I heard it, I just said the fishermen went out in Spanish, of course. Uh, the fishermen went out for three months on this fishing vessel. And I jotted down the word trawler and I handed it to my booth partner. And she was kind enough to look it up. And we found out what it was. Then later during one of the breaks, we actually went online and looked for pictures of them and what made it a trawler versus another type of fishing vessel. And that gives you that kind of context because you want context beyond just words. The word in the moment just to get you through is great, but you really do want to understand the whys and the wherefores. Once you fully understand the context behind it, it makes it easier for you to interpret. Even if there are variations of the word, if they start talking about things related to it, because now you know exactly what it is. I think this episode has taught us so much. I can absolutely say that it is one of the most educational episodes that I've had thus far. And I truly want to thank you for your time once again. And I truly want to be able to share this out and have everyone else be able to jot down all of the great information that you have shared with us today. But I also would like our listeners to know where they can find out more about you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, first of all, for the invitation. I think it's the other way around. I feel incredibly grateful to be part of your platform. Um, and I hope that it will continue to be found useful and entertaining and illuminating uh, for anyone that listens to it, whether they're actually working in interpretation or translation or not. I think a lot of the things that have been said by your previous guests apply to every walk of life. So there are a lot of little nuggets that can be found in, in what you have presented so far through your guests. And so again, I'm very grateful. As for me, um, I am present in most social media platforms. On LinkedIn, you can find me at linkedin.com slash in slash Carlos J, the initial J, Diaz de Leon. On Facebook, you can find me as Carlos Javier Diaz de Leon. And our website is www.ogmagroup.com. And when you see the website, you'll realize, again, it's a very simple website. We built it using the tools of the hosting company, but we feel it, it, it conveys what we do accurately and has a way to communicate with us and it works. Today has been great. Thank you so very much for your time, Carlos. I really do appreciate it. No, thank you. Like I said, I think it, it's been an incredible opportunity. Thank you. Be safe. You too. 
I hope you found this information useful. I know I did. Carlos has vast experience in conferences, serving organizations such as the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the California Environmental Protection Agency, the Federal Highway Administration, the International Boundary and Water Commission, the U.S.-Mexico Border Health Commission, the California Department of Public Health, the California Office of Binational Border Health, the Institute of the Americas, among others. For more stories on Carlos, find him on LinkedIn as Carlos Diaz de Leon or visit his website at agmagroup.com. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe. Until next time, bye-bye.